Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. I am joined today by two esteemed colleagues in the field of science with a capital S. Uh, the first is Dr. Benway, doctor at a urban public hospital and Pseudodionysus MPH, who is an expert in the field of the history of medicine. And uh, our conversations about these issues go back a good ways, but recently both of them have proposed to me that the real locus of postmodernism today is in the field of medicine and that medicine has become Baudrillardified and some more claims. Um, and obviously I think this is an important line of inquiry. So I've invited them on to have this discussion with me. So uh, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. And uh, let's just get right to the point. Um, how and why is medicine postmodern and how did it get that way? Pseudodionysius, do you want to kick off? Sure. Thanks, Jeff. It's good to be here. And it's Pseudodionysius, uh, not to be mistaken sorry, for Pseudodionysius, yes. whoever that yeah. is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Important distinction. Yeah. Um, the show notes will reflect that. <sighs> Glad to hear it. Um, authenticity is important. The um, medical research in large portions of medical practice in the United States and Europe today are dominated by um, something called evidence-based medicine, which is um, a way of thinking about medical expertise and clinical judgment that comes out of uh, Canada in the 80s and early 90s um, and is a response to um, crises in what was called practice variation in medicine, where um, comparable hospitals with comparable levels of funding, um, comparable levels of expertise, uh, uh, performing the same kinds of procedures on the same kinds of medical problems would um, respond to conditions in different ways. They do procedure A in city one and procedure B in city two, right? So if all of the relevant demographics and, um, and the diseases in question are sort of uh, the same between these two places, then what accounts for uh the prominence of different procedures in different places. Um, presumably one of them is less effective than the other ones. So the Canadians um, at McMaster who come up with evidence-based medicine attempt a kind of revolution in medical epistemology by deprioritizing the individual expertise of the physician um, and ceasing to rely on the long buildup of experience and instead focusing on randomized controlled trials, which um, don't use 
pathophysiological thinking about the body, about biology, about the processes involved um, for coming to conclusions about medicine, but instead um, correlate particular medical interventions with outcomes, right? So they bracket the mechanical processes that are involved. And um, this was supposed to uh, turn medicine into a science. Um, and over the past uh, 30 years, uh, evidence-based medicine has in various ways changed, but it has also come to completely dominate medical education and medical practice, and it's been exported. So we now hear things like evidence-based governance and um, uh, you know, evidence-based business management and all kinds of uh, um, similar terms that um, borrow the rhetoric of evidence-based medicine and take it elsewhere. Um, but one of the things that's really happening at the core of it is that it was always a sort of rhetorical move. And we can say a lot more about this. Um, Dr. Benway? Yeah, I think that's a really good introduction. And in thinking about why medicine is Postmodern, I sort of always go back to, there was a really wonderful article a couple of years ago in the British Medical Journal called uh, Brutalist Medicine that was specifically a reflection on EBM and, and construed it, and this was the first time I'd seen anybody do this, as, um, as kind of contiguous with things like Le Corbusier or other modernists and subsequent postmodernist movements that, that consisted in, a, in, a, in, in an attempt to create an absolute rupture with tradition. And just from the, from the sort of um, clinical point of view, I guess the analogy would be to move from uh, the way that medicine had been construed, at least in the Western tradition, since the Hippocratic corpus, which is as an art that you learn over a long period of time at the knee of a master and in which people are divided into particular schools based on what their master likes to do. And there's a lot of uh, tricks and knacks and small arts that are that are individual and that, that ramify through generations of pedagogy and to destroy all of that and replace it with a series of absolute precepts gained from raw empiricism that, as uh, you said, completely bracket notions of mechanism and certainly are designed to exclude any sort of personal influence or idiosyncrasy. Yeah. Um, you know, evidence-based medicine arises uh, at a really interesting moment in the history of science in the 20th and 21st century, which is it happens right in the midst of the so-called science wars. Um, in the 1990s, there is a series of protracted, ugly, and often very stupid battles between um, sociologists and sort of humanities uh, academics generally and uh, hard scientists that, um, you know, believe in that science is real and um, uh, that they should have no truck with all of this postmodern nonsense. And it's sort of kicked off by um, Alan Sokol publishing in social text, a hoax article um, was, it, was it called, uh, transgressing the boundaries towards a hermeneutics of quantum gravity. Um, which he then um, uh, comes out a couple of months later and says, oh, this is a fake and this discredits um, uh, sociological um, investigations of science. So there's this battle that's happening in the background that pits realist, hard-minded, um, uh, serious, progressive uh, uh, scientists against sort of francophone 
um, lunatics that don't believe in facts or reality and aren't, can't be taken seriously. And precisely in the early 90s, when um, lines are being drawn between uh, the hard sciences and the soft sciences, we find um, the opposite positions being taken within medicine, where um, uh, the creators of the medical epistemology that dominates our world are um, uh, self-identifying as sort of nominalists and Kuhnian um, uh, uh, believers in that medicine is a paradigm and science um, undergoes uh, revolutions that are difficult to compare to one another. And, uh, and then exporting their epistemology across the world, uh, not on the basis of evidence for its efficacy, but on the basis of faith. And they, they say so pretty, pretty, pretty directly, which is an extraordinary thing to find um, uh, people that believe in the correlations of signs and signifiers uh, uh, over the hard reality of matter right at the core of medical practice. Yeah, I mean, and a couple other points, you know, it's it's suggestive as well, this Canadian sort of 1980s setting, which of course is where, you know, Leotard's postmodern condition first appears as a report on knowledge delivered to the government of Quebec. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, this, this process that Dr. Benway is describing um, sounds very much like what, you know, people in the theory world used to talk about as the decentering of the subject, right? That, that there's a, not only a, a sort of epistemological shift, but also alongside that, a kind of shift in, sub, in the, the subject of knowledge, right? That, that the subject of knowledge is, is completely reimagined and is, is radically decentered in a manner that seems to resemble the kind of descriptive and prescriptive interventions of various of these sort of francophone, you know, don't believe in facts theorists that, um, you know, were largely construed in the science world as sort of anti-science. And yet some kind of process comparable to that seems to be occurring in the name of, you know, what we now think of as, I don't know, believing in science or whatever. Um, does that does that make sense as a uh, an extension of what you're pointing to? Yeah, um, I think it's important to emphasize for me that there's there's nothing wrong with say randomized controlled trials as an idea or a methodology. In fact, I'm not sure I would want to live in a medical world that hasn't included some of the changes and reforms of the past thirty years to how medicine is practiced, but. The, what there is is a shift in the valuation of different kinds of thinking um, where uh, physiology and mechanism gets downplayed in, in favor of a certain kind of free-floating, potentially statistical thinking. And then that value system gets exported. Um, and uh, you know, n- none of these things is a good or an evil in and of themselves, but um, the, the prioritization of certain kinds of thinking has, has consequences. And um, right up to the present moment, 
that we live in full of large scale governance choices being made on the basis of models. So that's, um, yeah. And I mean, in terms of, I'm curious, um, in terms of the kind of day-to-day practice of medicine, perhaps from Dr. Benway, what this kind of looks like and, you know, how it, how it transformed that experience and that, um, you know, that kind of uh, professional existence. Yeah. So I grew up during, I mean, as a, as a doctor, I, I sort of cut my teeth during the probably the height of EBM fanaticism. And I've watched subsequent generations of physicians leave medical school and residency as the sort of like torch carrying, you know, church militant of this movement. Um, and I, I would echo what Sue Dionysius just said in, in that these are extremely valuable tools that affect real potent differences in the world. I mean, we just saw this with the COVID pandemic where randomized trials established the safety and efficacy of a vaccine within like less than a year, which is totally extraordinary and changed the course of everything. Right. But um, I I think one of the things that's always fascinating to me about it is the way that um, if you believe, um, well, I, I guess if you, if you think about the way that clinical medicine as it exists in continuity of what we do now appeared in post-revolutionary France, right? With pathological anatomy as chronicled by people like Akronecht and Foucault, what you see is um, an inordinate fascination with the individual at the sort of structural interior level in terms of pathological anatomy and in terms of the ability of the physician to diagnose originally mainly just to diagnose, but subsequently increasingly to treat um, individuals in, in terms of their, their, in terms of the, the structures and processes that were located within the confines of their skin, right? What happens with EBM is, is a kind of absolute epistemic um, repudiation of that approach in favor of an approach that resolves truth, not through the interrogation of the individual by the skilled expert, but rather through the interrogation of populations that are subjected to controlled experiments. And so what that does to the subject, both at an abstract level and in a very concrete clinical way, I'll tell an anecdote about this in a second, is is to effectively make the individual disappear, right? Because you don't, um, you can't establish anything about an individual from a randomized controlled trial. You can establish things about groups of individuals who share certain demographic characteristics, but inevitably the outcome will occur to some of them and not to others. And you will not know with certainty why your treatment only worked in 70% of these people. You'll know that it worked in 70% of these people as opposed to 30% of people in the placebo group, which is something that's worth knowing, but you don't, it doesn't offer you any, any of the level of sort of individualistic specialized uh, what today trendily is called personalized medical knowledge. Right? So it's, it's a, it's a real change in the basic epistemological furniture of clinical medicine. And it's one that, um, that, that fundamentally changes medical practice insofar as you just apply it with the best of intentions. It's also one that enables a lot of slippage and a lot of kind of sleight of hand introduction of uh, political and moral valences into clinical conversations. Um, and the, the, the example that I'm going to give right now kind of illustrates that. So I have this vivid memory of being a, an intern on a cardiology team and there was one of the patients that we were taking care of was a guy who had advanced congestive heart failure and it was in and out of the hospital every two weeks and had been so for the last year and a half or so. And he had very advanced heart disease and 
fairly recently, it had fairly recently been established in a randomized controlled trial that for people who have his particular hemodynamic characteristics, when you look at his heart with an echocardiogram, they tend to die less often if you install an implantable defibrillating device in their heart that will shock them if they develop a rhythm that's not compatible with perfusing their brain. Um, and so a debate arose amongst the residents and medical students on the cardiology team about whether that would be a um, intervention that should be recommended for this particular guy. And the, the way that the argument went was with one side arguing that it, it, it was clearly indicated because his, the hemodynamic parameters of his heart met the criteria for people who entered the study. And the other side arguing that it clearly wasn't indicated because he as a person didn't meet the criteria for people who entered the study in that he had more than one disease. He didn't take his medications regularly. He didn't follow up with his doctor. And so the, I, I guess what I'm trying to illustrate here is the way that the individual is both dissolved, but is then subject to be reconstituted according to very crude demographic parameters. And that's about the level of detail that it allows you to get to. There's a kind of reversibility um, of conclusions that's present with this kind of population thinking um, where evidence for the use of a particular intervention um, can turn out to be evidence against it by the inevitable mismatch between the individual in front of you who's subject to a clinical decision and the population that is used for creating the randomized controlled trial, because people simply do not, are not perfect representatives of research populations. Well, this is a, this, I mean, this is a basic aspect of my day-to-day -day experience, right? Because to work in a public hospital is to work in a place where none of the evidence that's generated by the medical literature is applicable because where is it generated it's all generated in tertiary university hospitals primarily on compliant middle class largely white subjects who take their medications right and when you move into a real world environment that's at the lower end of these gradients of inequality that exist in society you find that all of your patients are would have been disqualified from the trial that you're using to make evidence-based decisions no matter what right Um, there's a kind of auto-deconstructive moment to statistical thinking of this type where um, uh, the, the condition of possibility of making a good, rigorous scientific judgment turns out to also be the condition of impossibility of um, making a good, rigorous judgment. So speaking of um, you know, Derrida appearing in the clinic. So you can speak about this, Sue Dionysius, and I'd be, I'd be curious to hear you talk about it. The One of the interesting things about EBM is that's always been true, and its proponents have always recognized that it's true. And so the, they've gone through all these evolutions since the 90s of trying to create other sort of casuistic um, areas of knowledge that you're that you're that are legit that you're allowed to adduce into evidence-based thinking, like patient preference or or other things like that. But it seems like th th there's been their efforts to make the system accommodate what would seem to invalidate it are sort of half-hearted and never seem to actually work. Yeah, evidence-based medicine falls apart um, almost as soon as it's born. It, um, what's originally imagined is um, one doctor, the EBM ninja, uh, versed in all of the details of biostatistics and with an ample amount of medical evidence in the form of 
uh, well-powered, well-designed, randomized controlled trials right at his fingertips. And um, instead of consulting the uh, old grizzled medical expert who um, uh, speaks like Osler, um, the, the young gun goes straight for the best quality research evaluates it in relation to the patient in front of him and, um, and then makes a decision according to the best evidence. And contained in this is the notion of a hierarchy of evidence where some evidence is better than others. Um, this is fine. However, it leads immediately to problems for actually putting this into practice. One, People are very bad at statistics, not any particular people, people in general, including, um, you know, well-trained medical professionals. Uh, the statistics involved in medical research are increasingly complex and involve uh, obscure and baroque uh, methods. And the creators of evidence-based medicine found immediately that they simply could not teach students um, to use their statistical acumen to accurately judge the quality of the papers that they were reading. So this emerges. There's also too much research. Um, there is so much medical research that it is impossible for any one particular uh, physician to read all of it, even within their narrow field of specialty. So what do they have to do? They have to rely on the very panels of experts and the systems of guidelines that evidence-based medicine was designed to exclude from the decision-making process. And finally, um, questions of patient values um, interfere in this process. So whatever the evidence for some course of action in medicine indicate, there is always going to be some reason to take another course. Um, now, that could be a failure for the patient to match the population that research is done on, or it could be that we, you know, make decisions about ourselves and our bodies and um, in terms of contexts that include both potentially scarce medical resources and the um, annoying autonomy of individuals and what they want um, from their own treatment and their own life outcomes. So, what happens is this vision of um, the perfect scientist, this transparent mediator between the vast and reliable world of scientific research and the gritty empirical particulars of um, clinical practice is shown to be immediately untenable. And what do you do if you can't make doctors into perfect scientific instruments as a result of their own individual acumen, their own statistical expertise, well, then you have to start introducing sort of disciplinary measures within the hospital to force them to practice according to the best evidence. So these are things like sets of practice guidelines where not only do you need to not know the mechanisms involved, but you don't need to know the evidence. Um, uh, and also sort of evaluating, giving kinds of 
Kukaldian report cards to physicians indicating whether or not they have practiced according to the best evidence, um, in quotation marks. And those are very much alive today in, in the form of tying money, um, access to, access to money to meeting various kinds of metrics, um, within, uh, medical practice. I'm sure you can say more about that. Yeah, we need to, well, so we really need to talk about the electronic health record as an instrument of governance, right? And as an instrument of discipline. Yeah. Um, we, so, so I want to do that, but I want to just say something that your, your avocation of the, the dawn of EBM and the fantasy of the EBM ninja reminds me of something that you, I think, were the person that originally showed me, which is uh, a picture of David Sackett, one of the founders of the movement with the device that he created, which he called the evidence cart, which was a... Uh, it, it's what it sounds like. It was a cart on big rubberized hardy wheels that could handle any hospital floor or wheelchair ramp. It had, this is in the nineties, right? So we were all alive in the nineties and we remember the awesome computational power of the devices that were available, right? So it had like a Mac SE2 on top of a big wooden cart that also had an analog projector and a projector screen. It had, and then it had uh, hanging files that you were supposed to keep current randomized controlled trials pertinent to common conditions in and a rack for recent journal editions. And you were, you were literally supposed to wheel this thing around the ward and consult it patient by patient in order to establish the best evidence available. Um, and it's a, it's a picture that I find really poignant because the vision is so seductive and it's so, um, it seems like, it seems so liberating, right? From the, from the necessity of accruing years and years of bitter experience through clinical mistakes and, um, and, and spending, you know, your life immersed in journals, trying to collate the best evidence and understand all the guidelines and whatever. But um, it's a very evocative image that maybe we can include in the show notes. Anyway, so EHR as uh, as disciplinary structure. I mean, I'm I'm actually pretty fortunate in that my uh, in in the pub in dysfunctional public hospitals um, or public hospitals that struggle with uh, billing for for perfectly reasonable um, reasons the degree of surveillance and discipline I think is less than it is in a lot of other contexts, but certainly like in the private sector, um, you know, the, the RVU, the relative value unit is something that physician compensation is tied to. And that is closely related to things that are um, often cost cutting, but also generally held to be evidence-based and often actually are evidence-based. So one of the most accessible examples is, uh, um, ordering x-rays or radiology studies in general. So if I, if I attempt to, if I, the, the electronic health record forces me to input diagnostic codes for any given visit. So if I put in, if I'm in the clinic and I put in low back pain as a diagnosis, and then I order an MRI, there's this little box that pops up that explains to me that this is low value care, that it's really expensive, that it's unlikely to yield anything interesting or clinically important. And then I have to put in a reason justifying why I'm doing this from a drop down list. You know, the patient's had it for more than three months. They have signs that are concerning for some kind of pathology that might be amenable to a surgical intervention. Or um, as a last resort, you get to free text. And only after you've done all that stuff do you get to order the test. And the point is to, the point is to discipline you and keep you within um, evidence-based practice guidelines. But it's an interesting, I mean, and, and I think that's a, that's a type of discipline that pretty much everybody in society who has to work with a computer is becoming pretty intimately familiar with, but. Yeah, and I mean, much of this, you know, goes along nicely with some things I've written about. I mean, so more broadly, one thing it illustrates is that you don't, you don't need very much Baudrillardian influence, if any, to 
essentially go in a Baudrillardian direction, which is of course what he would have predicted himself because um, he was simply describing what he, the trajectories that he was um, observing in, in the nature of, of knowledge production and so on, as was Leotard. Um, but, you know, the other, so, you know, again, a, a point I've made over and over again is that when people talk about post-modernity and post-modernism, they tend to treat it as this matter of intellectual influence, right? Where you can, um, where, you, where, you, where you need to understand it by, you know, tracing these ideas to their sort of um, origin point in, in these uh, arcane French books from the 60s and 70s. Um, whereas, you know, my approach has generally been to try to see how those books were often presciently describing phenomena that were underway at the time. And part of the reason they've gained a certain amount of traction is because they allowed people to describe things that were actually happening, including in realms that, that seem quite separate from the influence of these figures. Although, as um, Sue Dionysus brought up, there was a kind of explicit at least uh, Kuhnian, you know, Thomas Kuhnianism among the founders of um, EBM, which would suggest a certain kind of postmodern, um, you know, epistemological lineage. But um, the other point that I've made over and over again is that there's, you, you can't really understand these shifts without attending to the kind of underlying technological and sort of infrastructural um, you know, de developments that are occurring in the same period, you know, which are pretty ex made pretty explicit in something like the postmodern condition, although it's not necessarily the best or most, um, most insightful study, but uh, of, of these phenomena, but, you know, essentially, you know, he, uh, Leotard talks about the computerization of knowledge, right. And it, it seems to me pretty clear that, <laughs> you know, what the trajectory we're describing here is, is an instantiation of that. Right. Um, and so, the, the, I mean, we can look at the um, electronic health record as a kind of instrument of, of discipline, as you put it, Dr. Benway, and, and also, I think, as a kind of, um, you know, a, a technological development that, that contains and um, reinforces certain sort of ideological and epistemological presuppositions. And so that's, you know, perhaps one, one way of tracing this development. And so, I mean, I don't know how, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the initial um, notion of the, what was it? The knowledge cart? Yeah. The evidence cart. Yeah, the evidence cart, um, you know, is like, which, you know, is like almost reminiscent of that. There's like the thing in Gulliver's travels where the people have to carry around objects in order to, you know, talk about anything because that, you know, their, their language, I mean, it's, it's kind of the opposite sense in a way, but, but I love this kind of um, cumbersome form of, um, of sort of, uh, you know, maintaining the, uh, the sort of purity of knowledge in some sense. Um, and the way that, and the way that's sort of become, you know, through the, the sort of streamlining and, you know, seamlessness as the tech people and frictionlessness as the tech people like to talk about of, of technology that's, that's sort of just become sort of black boxed as a, as a set of presuppositions. Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely true. Um, 
I think it's worth noting that there are a lot of, uh, that, that probably the main point of contact that most practicing clinicians have, in, at least in the United States, with the medical literature is through secondary um, summarizing resources. Like there's this uh, website called Up to Date that is, it just contains continuously updated, relatively short, practically oriented articles on virtually everything. Um, and that's, that's an instance where people are still, you know, they're still applying their understanding and they're still trying to use the best evidence, but they're relying on a preliminary um, collation by, by other clinicians and, and statisticians and epidemiologists and stuff. Um, one of the things about the, that, that you were just saying, one of the things that, that um, I was thinking of while you were talking about that is the way that, so the, the salient thing about the evidence cart vis-a-vis -vis what actually happened is that the evidence cart is meant to be taken to the patient's bedside. You are supposed to go to the physical patient with the cart and then apply it and, and then act as a limpid conduit between the evidence contained in the cart and the suffering human in the bed, right? But what's actually happened is that um, Abraham Verghese wrote an essay in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago that I think was just called the eye patient, but in any case, it introduces this notion of the eye patient who is the being that exists by virtue of nurses entering vital signs, laboratory scientists entering laboratory values and all the other sort of data points that flow into the EHR. And there's a, there's a very strong tendency that has to be actively resisted and that doctors who are in training encounter all the time to focus primarily on the eye patient because first of all, that's where all of your actions are actually registered. It's, it's the case that everything you do to the eye patient is documented in a time-stamped way, whereas the things you do with the real patient are not necessarily registered by anybody. And it's also just much easier and more convenient because there's a computer terminal in one place, whereas you might have, you know, 16 patients that are all in different places in the hospital. And there's lots of other reasons that people sort of prefer virtual environments over real environments, right? But, but the, the point is that what the, what, what the evidence card ended up actually becoming is um, computers in windowless workrooms in the core of the hospital from which typically resident physicians and medical students interact in a primarily virtual way with real people who are actually in the hospital. The, the nature of the technology is really interesting here because uh, the, the fantasy is that the explosion in the volume of research, particularly in the 1980s, but ongoing today, um, will be managed via databases summaries and um, via the technology of the computer. But one of thing, the things that the computerization of medical records produces is more data, more information, and ever expanding and difficult to navigate health record precisely because it's so easy to include a lot of material, to copy previous portions of the record, to um, and to save it all, which has the effect of rendering it illegible in, in some cases. So, you know, the, the prison is presented as a solution to itself. And, um, well, this is, I mean, just to concretize it for listeners who might not be intimately familiar with medical records, this is a phenomenon that's usually called note bloat in academic medical circles. And what it refers to is, so, you know, when I was a kid, you had to actually write your progress note on a piece of paper with a pen, or you could type it on a computer and print it, but most people didn't do that because it was considered cumbersome, right? Now, progress notes are generated um, in the electronic health record, and not only can the notes populate things from different parts of the record, if you put in a couple simple 
prompts, you know, uh, programming prompts into your note, but you can also have templates that do this automatically and also auto-populate things like you. So, so you can auto-populate things that have actually been entered, like a, for example, the report of a chest X-ray, but you can also auto-populate things that haven't been done. So you can, so it's, it's, it's normal these days for uh, progress notes to include a templated physical examination that is normal. If you don't remember to change the physical examination, then abnormalities may go undetected or even worse, you have the assertion that there is no abnormality, whereas in fact, one exists, right? But also the temptation, particularly when you're you know, starting out and you really don't wanna miss anything and you wanna make sure you have all the data at your fingertips because your resident or your attending is gonna give you a bollocking if you don't, is to program your note to automatically include essentially the entire medical record so that the map becomes the territory. And so, I see notes all the time that if, if you were to print them out would run to seven or eight pages and document almost no material change in management from yesterday, but do include the reports of complicated imaging studies that took place two weeks ago and are no longer relevant to anything. And the results of the last 20 basic metabolic panels that were drawn over the last three weeks, only the, the last three of which are potentially relevant to anything. Um, so, so as, as you're saying, it, the, the, the surface of information crosses this point where it actually makes things less legible and less intelligible than they were before. Um, the thing you were saying about databases made me think about uh, the fact that, so, so the iPatient is sort of a locus of clinical intervention, but very quickly the iPatient became a subject of research too, because um, studying actual people is a pain in the ass, right? You have to find them in person, you have to get them to give informed consent, even for an observational study where you're not actually gonna do anything to them. And then you have to make sure that they follow up. And if they don't follow up, you have to report that in your paper. And if, if enough of them don't follow up and it invalidates your results and you have to give them coffee and bus passes and whatever, right? Whereas when you have an electronic health record that's full of iPatients, you can go to the Institutional Review Board and ask for an exemption because your study is just based on chart review, right? And then you evolve. And so statisticians over the last 10 years have evolved increasingly Baroque and complicated methods for uh, trying to reproduce the act of performing an observational study on eye patients instead of real patients, um, which is, I mean, it, it speaks to the Baudrillardian theme, right? And that we're, we're becoming, it, we're moving further and further away from what's actually going on and more and more towards a, a representation of what's going on, replacing the thing itself. Um, but uh, oh, I brought it up just to say that you know, as Sue Dionysus was pointing out earlier, one of the earliest conclusions that EBM proponents came to is that you can't rely even on people who have, a, who have a college education and have been to medical school to understand and regularly apply extremely simple statistical concepts. This is definitely true in my experience. I'm responsible for teaching this aspect of the curriculum to, to graduate medical learners, right? Um, but also uh, the the techniques that have been evolved for this, for the replication of observational studies with eye patients are not taught in medical school because they're considered to be the province of statistics because they're too complicated to expect medical students to understand. But they have become the underpinning of, if not a majority, then a substantial minority of all of the, med of all of the medical literature, of all the things that are published in medical journals. And I mean, this... I think is a good way to segue to the larger implications of this approach uh, during the past year and a half and the way that it's kind of shaped our uh, 
understanding of COVID and um, policy responses to it. Um, I mean, one point that might be worth dwelling on here, though, is, you know, one thing that you see conflated just in your sort of average um, whatever Twitter discussion is, is often just basically medicine and epidemiology, like people don't really like the average person doesn't seem to really distinguish between those things. So I'm curious, um, first of all, how, and then, I mean, another point that speaks to several um, observations that have been made is, you know, I, I found myself thinking about a book I reviewed not that long ago called The Revenge of the Real by Benjamin Bratton. And, you know, one of the strangest ideas in that is that, you know, basically he seems to kind of celebrate the idea that COVID has made everyone into an amateur epidemiologist. And, you know, he seems to regard this as, as a great uh, form of progress. Now, it's interesting in light of both of your observations about, you know, tra even trained professionals challenges with um, just engaging in statistical thinking uh, that, that this seems in many ways like a, you know, a further disastrous extension of this set of problems, um, which, you know, we can clearly find many examples of, but, um, you know, I'm curious about how, um, how this also relates to the development of epidemiology and whether there's a kind of um, convergence or sort of parallel development there. I mean, obviously epidemiology is fundamentally concerned with models, right? And in, in a way that, you know, this, this kind of, um, you know, ye old medicine pre-EBM that we've been talking about wasn't necessarily part of this paradigm shift. Um, but, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are on sort of the relationship between the developments we've been discussing and the, the sort of uh, professional role of epidemiology. I think the, the hegemony of models in epidemiology is, is a, is a latter development, right? I mean, I think, so first of all, it's worth noting that EBM was originally called clinical epidemiology. That was the first sort of label that they put on it. And the point was to say, we're clinicians who are in command of epidemiology, which is to say medical literature broadly construed, right? Um, but I, I think that the early pioneers of EBM would not have signed on to a lot of model-based thinking that currently occurs because they would have said that their project is purist empiricism and that this isn't empirical, this is imagination, you know? Um, I think it's also worth noting that, uh, well, I mean, I, so one thing to say about the last year and a half or two years is that um, one of the pre-COVID, pre a lot of uh, model-based research concerned things that we already knew about and might have been based on, or was often based on the kind of data that we were talking about that are available from the EHR, right? So you take a bunch of eye patients and you put them in a model and you see what happens. And then you say that you figured, you figured something out about a condition of interest, right? But COVID was completely novel and we'd never had anything like this before. And there was no way to predict what was gonna go on. And yet what immediately happened was an enormous profusion of computer model-based uh, studies about what was going to happen. And the fact that almost all of the fact that these were, were based on computer models that relied on assumptions that were tenuous at best because we were only six months into our knowledge of a completely novel disease was completely lost on the public in general. And I think on a lot of healthcare providers as well. Um, I mean, I'm thinking back to 
you know, articles talking about the absolute importance of wearing masks in all contexts because we did a, we did a modeling study and it showed that if you don't do it, you're going to have this much of an increase in um, COVID cases here or there and, and how those were based on, I mean, in, in, in particularly with regard to indoor masking in the early part of the pandemic, almost all of the evidence came from a couple of observational sources and then was heavily um, applied in various different computer simulations to produce conclusions that were absolutely not warranted. I mean, I'm not, I'm not articulating an anti-mask agenda here. I'm just trying to distinguish between evidence that's accrued from experimental testing or observation of real people and evidence that's accrued from creating a computer model based on assumptions about either of those two things and then seeing what the results of the computer model are. By the early 2000s, the gold standard for medical evidence was no longer the randomized controlled trial. It was the meta-analysis. So it's a secondary textual and statistical product that gathers together a bunch of randomized controlled trials that are ostensibly on the same kind of intervention on similar kinds of populations and then recombines them to create a new piece of evidence that is hopefully higher in quality than any of the original trials taken alone. And um, uh, this valuing of these meta levels of evidence um, really is an, deeply connected to um, uh, being able to mine uh, existing patient records for additional um, research potential, right? So there's the possibility here of taking what you already know and creating novel scientific knowledge out of it rather than going out and acquiring something new. Um, and one of the things that happens in the United States and elsewhere under coronavirus is that the data surveillance mechanisms of the United States are terrible the ability to gather data about who has what, where, when, how long do they have it for? Um, we simply don't have the people or the money or the technology to gather enough information for epidemiologists on their um own terms to, to make real conclusions about what's happening with coronavirus in the United States. And so there's an additional impetus here to rely on modeling for producing predictions about COVID. These kind of results also don't wear their underlying data and methods on their sleeves. So it's not obvious from looking at the title of the paper or necessarily even the first couple of lines of its abstract that it's based on um, models or that it is some sort of a direct observation. There's nothing wrong with modeling in and of itself. Um, but there is a reason why it has been exploding in the United States. Um, and it has to do with this kind of background failure to acquire a serious public health infrastructure and hold on to it in the United States. These are not disconnected. Yeah. yeah and the, 
Sure. So I don't think either of you have read Bratton's Revenge of the Real, but you know he he does have this um, notion of the sensing layer, which I think is sort of pointing at what you're describing as as you know something we we largely do not have. Um, I mean, I thought one of the missed opportunities of that book was that he, um, in my view, spent more time um, kind of hammering away at the standard kind of partisan blame game rather than actually reflecting on the um and and this you know basically requires him to uh you know fall back into a kind of believe science position um rather than actually thinking more concretely about um what what the deficiencies of the so-called sensing layer are concretely and how that might be remedied and what the context in which it seems to work better are and um so you know i think (laughs) This is I, one of the things that's frustrating about that book is that it's um, it's not entirely wrong at some of what it's pointing out, but um, it, it it would rather uh, sort of um, antagonize ideological enemies than try to understand what the um, and and that sort of requires him to unreflectively. Um, you know, place his trust in modeling despite its demonstrated failures um, rather than understand or, or attempt to understand what's going wrong with, with modeling um, and how, how it could be used in a more responsible way. Um, so, you know, this, this is part of why I think there, there's sort of a, you know, th- there's an opening for this sort of discussion that um, I just don't think I see many people pursuing, um, unfortunately. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a very strong, uh, it can't be overstated how difficult it is to easily distinguish between whether you're reading a report of real events that actually happened to two groups of people, one of whom was given a placebo and one of whom was given a treatment, or you're reading what happened when some untested assumptions were fed into a computer model. Uh, it's actually remarkably hard to to differentiate between those two things as a primary consumer of the medical literature, you have to explicitly go looking for those. For, I mean, you, you have to you have to read the methodology carefully, right, in order to understand what exactly happened. But but it's totally commonplace for modeling studies to be presented essentially as though they were completed observational studies that happened in the past. Um, and and I think I mean I, I don't know this is I, this is a little bit simplistic, but I I do have the sense that the sort of transition from a focus on individual randomized control trials to a focus on meta-analyses um, made a big difference in the way that sort of frontline consumers of medical literature think about methodology because you can't look under the hood of a meta-analysis easily. It's relatively straightforward to figure out what someone did in a randomized control trial and see if it looked like a good idea or not. But it's really hard to figure out, I mean, you essentially have to repeat it, right? Because you have to decide whether all of the trials that have been included for meta-analysis are in fact comparable or not. They will assure you that they are obviously, right? But but in order to establish whether you're gonna trust the conclusions of the meta-analysis, you would have to independently verify that, which is a lot more than most people have time for um, or the statistical training to do. So, and, and it seems to me like that, um, the elevation of the standard of evidence to something that was fundamentally not straightforward and fundamentally hard to look under the hood of then enabled this ramification of other methodologies where you also can't look under the hood because people have become accustomed to the idea that things that you couldn't look under the hood of could be counted as evidence. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and there's, if this is a problem for well-trained medical professionals, then it is doubly a problem for governors and um, people at the federal level and, you know, tiny little health departments. Um, Because they are, they were put in a really unpleasant situation, which is that um, there appeared to be a crisis unfolding in the United States with, and models were predicting uh, tremendous amounts of death. And um, the thing about the models that then unfold over the, over 2020 is that they, um, they involve choices about what to model, right? This is true of all research to a certain extent that you can only, you're only producing results about things you choose to investigate. But uh, the kinds of variables included in models um, uh, are choices that are transparently sort of driven by scientific and political concerns that are not stated by the model. So whether or not you model social distance, right, as a, and then your output is a projected number of deaths over the next couple of months. Um, you could be modeling instead mask uptake or vaccination rates, or you could be making different assumptions about, um, uh, you know, say the duration of the disease um, and producing results that are easy to read in compelling graph format that are Baroque statistical operations um, behind the scenes uh, is tends to hide a lot of scientific and political choice that probably deserves to be um, worn on the sleeve of any research. The And this I would say is interesting in that, you know, this is a theme you'll find discussed a lot on the left uh, in terms of the claims of big data you know, that come out of the tech industry over the past 10 or 15 years. And that, you know, there's been this kind of consistent line of critique focusing on things like, you know, algorithmic bias um, being one of the kind of buzzwords. And um, I believe one of the people studying that, you know, won a MacArthur Genius Grant this year. So it's kind of a, you know, the, the, the attempt to kind of debunk the, the ostensible sort of neutrality of something like big data and kind of look inside the black box and um, figure out, you know, what the, what the political and social and cultural factors are that are, that are always attending to the, the generation of that, um, of those data sets. You know, so, so there is a kind of openness on the left to um, think about this when they're in the sort of critiquing Silicon Valley mode. But my sense is that, you know, there's been a, generally a hostility in the context of, of COVID policy to doing the same um, because largely people on the left have, you know, tied themselves to certain partisan commitments that require them to, um, you know, treat uh, certain sources as, um, you know, trustworthy and, um, 
and and treat questioning those those kinds of sources and authorities as as a kind of um, dangerous and even sort of murderous activity. And so it's it's interesting to me the the this kind of divergence between those two approaches where you know in a sense what you're describing is the same um, a, a similar set of processes that that go under the heading of big data in the medical and epidemiological realm. And yet there there's, you know, the, the sort of left hostility to critique on that front has been quite remarkable. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think that a lot of that hostility comes out of a sort of tree, a, a sort of epistemological triage where you say something like, okay, like it may be that this computer model of masking and social distancing relies on assumptions that are to some degree untested, but when what it's opposed to is people advocating the use of medications that have been demonstrably shown in real world randomized controlled trials not to work for COVID, for instance, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin, then you know, we'll, we'll take good enough for now. And I think the, the basic failing of that line of reasoning is that the assumption is that if you start critiquing um, the, the, the contemporary mechanisms of production of evidence-based medical knowledge, then somehow the floor will fall out of the whole thing and the people who currently believe in science will stop believing in science. And I think that's a complete misconception if only because as you just kind of articulated, you know, people have mostly decided which side their bread is buttered on and they're not gonna start believing in ivermectin because you started questioning the latest research on masks, mostly because what's determining whether they believe in ivermectin or not is what Facebook social group they're in, right? Um, so, so I, I, I understand viscerally why there's this hostility to criticism of, of stuff particularly surrounding COVID, but I also think that it's a little bit misguided and that it, the consequences it imagines are not real ones. And the, I mean, the, the other thing I think we're sort of getting towards here, which I know Sue Dionysus will have some thoughts on is, you know, there's kind of a, a, another thinker who we've, who we've all discussed um, extensively in the past, uh, Bruno Latour, you know, um, has this notion of, of I mean, am, among others, of, of purification, right? And so w- when we began this trajectory, what we, what we saw was this, um, this paradigm shift that defined itself as a purification, right? That it, it, it purified the, um, it, it made, you know, science in Latour's understanding is based on these kinds of gestures of purification, where um, something is is defined as sort of cordoned off from all of these external influences, such as you know politics, um, individual idiosyncrasy, intuition, etc., right? And is is purified in this case through its rigorous attachment to um, statistical studies and models. And so, you know, what we've seen though is a trajectory by which this kind of, um, you know, the sort of Weltanschauung that emerges out of this and is ultimately kind of popularized, you know, in things like, as, as Braddon observes, you know, basically people becoming sort of amateur epidemiologists, much as the, the pioneers of EBM saw themselves as clinical epidemiologists. Um, what happens is that, uh, you know, this, this kind of gesture of purification becomes popularized, but you know, and this is the Latourian point that um, the, the, the purification was always a kind of, uh, always a kind of illusion, right? Um, and so I think, you know, we're becoming more and more able to see that for the, 
um, for the simple reason that that it's it's very easy to see how this kind of these kinds of rhetorical gestures are fundamentally political, right? As we were just pointing to, and you know, to take this a bit further, you know, one of um, Sue Dionysus's areas of interest is um, you know in in this concept that. Um, in a brilliant essay from early on in the pandemic, uh, was referred to as uh, Corona Demonology by the um, philosopher Jason Mahagahe, and um, and also the the ways that um, you know sort of anthropological uh, studies of of witchcraft have have actually um, <laughs> proven nowhere so relevant as as this kind of um, this kind of moment of pop epidemiology, right? That, that, that would seem to be a kind of popularization. And again, I think Bratton tries to frame it as this, you know, I mean, he tries to largely celebrate it as a, a moment when this kind of EBM mentality becomes popularized. But, you know, the, the, the illusion here is that there is a purification from politics and other factors. And, you know, a sort of, you know, one way of, of thinking about this alternatively is that, you know, what we see here is, is um, like never before a kind of convergence of allegedly, you know, evidence or science-based, you know, claims and thinking uh, with, you know, what has long been described in the literature about witchcraft. So perhaps we could go into that a little bit. In the past 18 months have been a very bad time for experts. Um, it seems to me that coronavirus um, took already shaky faith in medical expertise, including epidemiology, and um, did great harm to it. And that... Um, public health experts in the United States were not doing themselves any favors in this department. Um, from the point of view of any sort of rigorous public health system, it's actually very bad news if everyone becomes an epidemiologist, right? Because, well, what would have to happen in order for them to do that? Well, there would have to be a breakdown in trust of existing expertise. Um, and, in this case, the breakdown in trust is connected both to the research infrastructure of the countries where this is happening and the um, transparently uh, um, political choices of um, experts involved. And uh, this has consequences for the ability of a government to make decisions about its population. One, one of the facts of any sort of disease that you cannot escape from is that effects happen at population levels, not individual levels. And not being able to make solid judgments at a population level, which ought to be the kind of thing that a government is good at, um, means that the kinds of activities that any public health department at any level of government should be engaging in um, uh, devolve to smaller institutions and individuals. So people, even at the level of their household, are faced with the prospect of um, making judgments that um, 
they are not equipped to do from the point of view of having access to uh, sufficient sufficient data. They um, yet they have to make them because there are um, uh, you know they're, they're faced with you know extreme danger or death. You know excess mortality in 2020 was, was real. People were actually in danger, um, and but how they respond to that becomes pretty dramatically deranged as um, public expertise begins to break down. And one of the things that begins to happen here is a kind of counting for counting's sake, where um, the data gathering mechanisms of public health or epidemiology or medical research generally um, uh, get mimicked at the household level where pretty soon you're counting, you know, days since your exposure to people, days since their exposure to others, how many people you've come in contact with, how long you have been isolated, what the daily death and case numbers are for your county, city, and state. Um, and as you gather all of this data, you become incapable of agreeing with other people that you're exposed to in your normal social life about what to do with it, right? So, and so we watch people have disagreements all the time about what is considered safe activity in 2020, what will keep them alive and healthy. But the standards for even thinking about what um, safety would mean here are shifting underfoot. And the um, you know, mimicking, um, becoming a public health department of one, uh, rather than introducing sort of technical expertise um, uh, into, you know, ordinary life, um, actually seems to sort of drive people crazy. It's um, because they cannot agree about what it is they're looking at how they're um, judging the kinds of activities that they're that they might want to do, like seeing other people, going to the grocery store, like going to you know holiday gatherings, going to work at all, even going outside. Uh. And that seems unlikely to change in the immediate future because, I mean, despite widespread vaccination and the fact that, that the nice thing about this vaccine is, unlike the flu vaccine, this vaccine is individually protective. You don't need to, you don't need everyone to get it in order to protect you, you just need to get it. And then you're protected, basically. There's some exceptions, but they're very rare. Um, so even, even in the setting of a vaccine that's individually protective and that's had very high uptake in some regions of the country, people understandably are reticent to abandon this. You know, Once handed this kind of responsibility, it's hard to imagine a world in which you would no longer have it, right? Um, and so, so we, you, know, you still see people uh, going through these sort of complex calculi using risks, the absolute quantity of which both changes in real terms with waxing and waning incidents of COVID, but is also hard to know under any circumstances and definitely not readily available to, you know, people who, are, who aren't working, who aren't actually working in public health departments, but rather trying to become the health department of one. Um, and you sort of wonder when it's going to end, especially because part of the 
part of the sort of dissolution of, uh, or part of the, the failure of expertise in this pandemic seems to be the general abandonment of evidence-based, or I should say epidemiology-based stepped uh, movements towards normalization. I mean, I think, that, you know, there are some places where this is laid out better than others, but it seems like the notion that there's going to be a clear off-ramp that's going to be triggered by a particular level of incidence in the community or a level of hospitalization or whatever seems to have been indefinitely suspended. And, and with it, the mandate to continue to be your own public health officer seems likely to remain, um, at least as most people perceive it in force. Right. And you also see the increasing hiring of public health officers at the more and more local level, which, you know, is is a, another odd tendency where, um, you know, for example, like, I mean, in the university context, even there, I would say it's um, it's it's quite weird to have somebody who um, who is responsible for, you know, maintaining the um, the. COVID case rate at a certain acceptable level, you know, in a setting in which everyone is interacting with people who, um, I mean, depending on what type of university you're at, but everyone is constantly interacting with people who inhabit other settings, right? But, but then at the same time, you know, I see it a lot in New York that you have, you know, essentially like small business owners having to function themselves as public health officers. Um, and so what's, you know, another strange result of the sort of trust the experts, um, you know, paradoxical results of the sort of trust the experts dogma of the past year and a half is that in fact, what we have is a situation where responsibility is left with people who we, if we know anything, we know that they are not experts, right? And then even at the level of like, you know, whatever the chief medical officer or, or whatever the title would be of like a university or something like that. There's sort of a, um, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot that's questionable about um, the idea that they actually, even if they had the necessary ability or knowledge to do so, that they would actually be able to um, do the thing that is being entrusted to them. And so this is why, you know, it, it, it seems almost you know, going back to um, going back to the sort of witchcraft and demonology side of it, right? It's it's more this kind of strange expansion of this this sort of priesthood, which is charged with um, allegedly kind of maintaining the purity of certain spaces and kind of keeping certain dangers at bay by enforcing certain kinds of ritualized behavior, um, and that you know at this point seems to be probably the most um, what, what, what most of this, uh, <clears throat> sort of, um, complex of public health measures that we have seen develop over, you know, abruptly and sort of in an ad hoc way over the past year has, has essentially become, right. I don't know if I'm, I'm going too far with this, but it, it seems to function primarily as a kind of, um, a set of ritual practices that are administered by a kind of diffuse priesthood, um, charged with, you know, with maintaining, and, and again, I think the function of the model is important here, right? Institutions have all have their own pages where things like that. Um, and this, you know, this is part of the, um, it's, it's one of the rituals, right? It's to, to sort of keep count. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, again, a, an extremely, um, revealing endpoint for the 
the processes that we've been describing, I would say. There's an important distinction in the sort of social science um, literature between sort of, uh, we'd, say, we'd say the normal functioning of, of witchcraft accusations and, um, and some kind of runaway disastrous um, epidemic uh, set of witchcraft accusations. So, you know, what is witchcraft as understood by anthropology? It's, it's the um, addition of a moral order to a causal material order, right? So um, I get sick or I die. Why? Um, well, I um, was infected by some sort of pathogen. It caused illness in my body. Um, I experienced symptoms and then I died. Well, that's a sort of a how question. How did I get sick? And it's a question about the material order of the universe. But then there's a larger kind of moral question, which is, well, why did that particular causal order obtain when it did and how it did? Um, uh, why that particular set of exposures? Why did my body respond that way? And was, is there these why questions introduce the possibility of human agency um, that uh, potentially caused me to experience this kind of exposure, right? So um, at least in sort of classical formulations, the, when, when people are talking about witchcraft, they're talking about um, relations between people and their physical consequences for sickness and, and death. And there's a kind of normal functioning of this where it allows you to talk about the moral universe in your day-to-day -day world and do things like divide groups that need to not have as tight social binds as they do to, 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 to engage in a kind of social vision and split um, one particular, say, village into two. And this is a kind of normal healthy functioning of, uh, um, of thinking about morality and human relations. But what happens if it starts going down a path of like runaway social vision where um, every accusation um, about moral culpability and infection, say you were at a bar with people that were unmasked or you were around somebody and didn't report that they um, had possibly had a COVID exposure and therefore I cannot engage with you anymore, where that can't be resolved in a comfortable way, where there, there can't be some sort of repair of the relationship. And so things split further and further and further and people's social connections get smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, Donna Haraway, uh, you know, boomer, Santa Cruz, late stage, cringe, social scientist, um, likes to talk about the capacity for viruses to make kin, um, for people to acquire interspecies relationships on the basis of viral transfection. And if coronavirus has shown us anything, it's this profound capacity for it to unmake kin, to, um, to split people apart in ways that are uncontrolled, that are runaway. And um, I think uh, uh, this is not so good for us. It, um, 
produces a uh, um, uh, in the in the absence of functioning expertise, it produces a tremendous capacity for social isolation and for an inability to agree about sort of basic facts of, of the world and our everyday doings. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I also, I'm, I don't mean to sound like too much of a sort of enlightenment, you know, Voltarian rationalist here, but I would say that that sort of uh, the, the kind of, you know, moral attribution to cause and effect in the physical world that you're outlining under the heading of witchcraft is something that is definitely definitely flourishes and is a lot more seductive and useful in situations where you really don't know why things are happening or how likely they are to happen. And one of the things about, I mean, I, I guess a thing to say about this pandemic is that these days, I think our epidemiological knowledge of the behavior of coronavirus is fairly solid. Of course, then you know, things like the Delta variant happen and they destabilize all the existing models and it behaves differently than we are accustomed to it behaving. But especially earlier in the pandemic, um, people had very little idea what was going on or what was likely to happen. And that was uh, to some extent obvious because the, because just of the absence of data, right? So like, for, for example, the um, IHME website that has all these, that has graphs projecting um, the future of COVID under various different circumstances in like functionally all regions of the world at this point has curves for what's going to happen if we ease all mandates, what's going to happen if we all keep wearing masks and what's going to happen if we do nothing. And what I've, what I've, I mean, one thing that's interesting about this, right, is that this, we're now two years on, right? To my knowledge, I last reviewed this two to three months ago. There's a single methodologically compromised and basically inconclusive study on the efficacy of masking for preventing transmission of coronavirus. So I don't know what they're basing the computer model that's producing these assumptions about what's gonna happen if we stop wearing masks on, but they're not basing it on a robust experimental literature. And, and we're unlikely to get one because you know the last thing you want is to be the first author on the paper that shows that masks don't work, right? Um, just politically. But so, so the, sorry, so the point was we, we never really knew a whole lot about how, how this was going, about what was happening. Then we went through this massive crisis of expertise, which was partially self-inflicted and made everybody their own public health officer and put them in a position where they really have no hope of knowing what the attributable risk of any modification of activity is on any given day, partly because it's intrinsically complicated and partly because it changes with the incidence of the disease, which is always changing, right? Um, so, so you put people in this position where actually, we're, we're attaching any kind of quantitative value to those estimations of risk is prima facie impossible. And of course you get, of course we revert to ways of thinking that served us well before we had compelling alternative explanations for certain kinds of cause and effect, you know? I think I would wanna argue here that, you know, public debates about masking and um, what sort of decisions we should make based upon the not non-existent, but weak evidence for um, mask efficacy. The existence of this public debate is itself a symptom of a larger social ill. Because this is being approached as though we're the only thing that saves us all from death. Whereas there's actually, all their things being equal, a wide range of potential social interventions. So one could imagine things like the capacity to stay at home being robustly supported by a state that gives people resources and the financial capacity 
to be isolated from other people, which means you know, there's more than one mechanism to prevent viruses moving from person to person. And yet we talk about it as though there were only this single instrument, masks and business closures, I guess, is a secondary one. But the choices in front of us are wider. And so that the debates get you know, confined to a narrow thing um, is a, itself a bad result. Well, I'd say the, I mean, in some ways, you know, the mask becomes the, the fetish object because it, you know, in a, in a sort of anthropological sense it, you know, thinking about sort of Mary Douglas's purity and danger and um, studies like that, you know, it, it functions as a clear barrier between inside and outside. And so it, um, it, you know, seems to, when we, um, you know, when we fall into this kind of um, conflation of um, moral and physical causality um, and, you know, this conflation of individual and population level behaviors and trends and, and all of these other kind of collapses of distinctions that we're talking about, um, which to use my, you know, usual reference of Rene Girard would be, we could think of as undifferentiation. Um, you know, what the, the most immediate um, need is to restore differences, right? And so, um, and, and restore boundaries. And so, you know, it's, it's clear that the things that do that in the most apparent and intuitively graspable way are the things that are going to be seized upon. Um, and this so, you know, I found this depressing in terms of the, the contrast between the vaccine and masking um, discussions, right, where, where you have people who are actually much more willing to acknowledge uncertainty around vaccines, which, you know, in some ways is, I mean, in many ways is far less than, than they would ever be to acknowledge similar uncertainties about masks in general, which is already a kind of bizarre um, amalgamation in that you know, there are all sorts of different kinds of materials and, you know, there are differences between what happens at the individual level and the population level, which, which all get, you know, what, when you divide it into a binary sort of pro versus anti-mask debate, it all get completely um, left aside. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, it, it's frustrating to me as someone who uh, grew up, who was raised by my teachers in medical school to be an EBM partisan and an EBM ninja and who continues to find that movement a source of inspiration and great utility in my clinical life, despite my various critiques of it, um, that there seems to be so little interest in generating an actual evidence base. Because So here's, here's something that I think is insufficiently talked about. And there's actually, there's a, there's a few different ways in which I, I, I find this interesting, but just to, to bring up the first one. So um, last year, last winter, there was no flu season in the United States. It didn't happen in any appreciable way. This is a disease that in a bad year, not like the H1N1 pandemic, but like a normal bad year kills, you know, 50 to 60,000 people in this country, hundreds of whom are children and sickens many more at a cost of millions, if not billions of dollars to the healthcare system. And obviously great personal costs to the families of the people who are killed, right? that basically didn't happen this year. That usually happens every year. We don't usually make a big deal out of it. It does happen every year. It didn't happen last year. And 
undoubtedly the reason that it didn't happen was because of the public measures, public health measures that were put in place against another virus with, with extremely similar transmission mechanisms and clinical manifestations, COVID, right? So it would seem to me that you would want to establish as soon as possible what were the most efficacious components of what we did in response to COVID, because not only would it be great to not have people die of COVID, but it would be awesome to not have a flu season every year. And yet what you don't see are a sort of systematic and pragmatic proliferation of government-funded clinical trials designed to establish whether the thing to do is close businesses or the thing to do is wear masks or, you know, because I mean, if it turned out that the masks were the thing, that would be awesome because they're cheap and it's easy to implement, right? Regardless of its symbolic valences. If on the other hand, it turns out that the only way to achieve that result is to close down businesses for four months, then we might be willing to accept 60,000 dead people every year for the sake of not tanking our economy, you know, for three months out of the year. But it, it, it it's frustrating from a, from a, from a totally naive, um, you know, EBM partisan point of view that we can't seem to, that we seem so so bogged down in these kinds of ridiculous fetishistic debates um, that we can't actually just do what the pioneers of EBM would have prescribed to begin with, which I think is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe a good place to start winding this down. Um, any uh, final thoughts from Sue Dionysus to add to that? Um, no, thanks for the discussion. Um, it was enjoyable. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the message I want to end on is that, you know, we're the, we're the pro-science people <laughs> and all the people who say they are are not. Um, That's right. And, Trust science, uh, just yeah, not. So just, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so, you know, if anybody has... If any censors out there are thinking about flagging this as misinformation, I just want them to know think, that we're the real pro-science people here. Can I bring up one other thing? Yeah, of course. Which is, I, I, I wanted to say one other thing about the flu, which is I was, as I was thinking about conversations we've had about this before, I was reflecting on the fact that I lived through the H1N1 pandemic in my early career. And um, it seems like, so the H1N1 pandemic, let's remember uh, a respiratory airborne illness occurring somewhere in Asia thought by some to have been escaped from a secret Chinese laboratory thought by some to have arisen from the unholy congress of pigs and ducks, right? Um, with, a, with very similar transmission mechanics to uh, COVID-19, very similar consequences, affected different populations, was worse for obese people and pregnant women and affected children more grievously, but otherwise very, very similar in a lot of broad and important respects none of this happened. Not only did none of this happen, but we counted it in a completely different way, right? For, for, for H1N1, we counted, we counted people who got sick. There was no point outside of a university research context in which we ever advocated asymptomatic testing for anyone under any circumstances, even though it's well known of influenza that it can cause asymptomatic or barely symptomatic infection. So I guess one of the things that's really striking to me about all the stuff that has come in the wake of COVID is the way that it um, the way that it indicates that there's been one of these sort of Foucauldian epistemic ruptures in epidemiology between 2009 and 2020, because, and you can tell because the way that we responded to fundamentally similar situations in the, in the setting of a fundamentally similar technological infrastructure is completely different and presages this, this sort of new regime of, 
statistical biopower that we're all going to get to find out a lot more about, but that um, that, that is alarming for a lot of the reasons that we've already brought up, right? Like it seems to be, it seems to exist largely in the realm of simulation. It includes, it, it, it extends its uh, powers of subjugation and subjection to people who have RNA in their nose, but no detectable symptoms and are not known to be transmissible or are un unlikely to be transmissible because they've been vaccinated. You know, it, 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 it feels like a sort of further ramification of, uh, of biopower to a new level that, that we're all gonna have to deal with. Absolutely. I think not knowing is difficult, especially when you're operating under immense fear and the possibility of uh, real harm coming to people. And um, living with uh, uncertainty here rather than trying to close gaps between certainty and uncertainty by any means necessary might be a basic tool for individuals that is more useful than how to read um, graphs produced by large university research institutions. All right. Well, thanks to you both. Thank you. I'm sure this discussion will continue on the air or off and look forward to the next uh, installment of it. Rock on.